remembering to turn on my recording device here. Uh, the cards that you have given out with my photo on the front, uh, they've got my podcast uh, address on the back, together with various sort of recommended readings and uh, websites that I think are good resources for looking into uh, the deep questions of existence and what Christianity has to say about them. Uh, so if all this technology does work, eventually this might end up on my podcast and you can go and uh, re-listen there if you want to or if you want to recommend it to a friend who wasn't able to come today. Now, uh, the whole science and religion question is a little large for a lunchtime lecture, so I had to uh, pick a topic to sort of focus uh, the attention on, and I've decided to focus uh, attention on uh, Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, uh, came out a while ago, but last year he brought out a second edition of the book with a new preface defending himself against some of the criticism uh, that the first edition of the book had garnered. Uh, so I'm going to look at the, the central argument that uh, Dawkins, a famous British uh, atheist and scientist, uh, gives in this uh, book and uh, show why I think his argument doesn't work. Personally, I'm with the Roman author Cicero, who said, what could be more clear or obvious when we look up at the sky and contemplate the heavens than that there is some divinity of superior intelligence? Most people in the world actually just find it sort of intuitively obvious that there is a divine. Richard Dawkins feels this pull towards what he labels the God temptation. He says the God temptation is the temptation to evade by invoking a designer the responsibility to explain. He thinks you either explain things with science or you do religion and that is uh, evading your responsibility to explain things sensibly. And he talks about the design problem, well, problem from his point of view, of course. He says, you and I and every other living creature are machines of ineffable complexity, complexity of a magnitude to challenge our credulity. And I like this that he says, because as a philosopher, I like people who define their terms, and here he is defining in terms, and he says, by complexity, complexity here means statistical improbability in a non-random direction. So not just complexity, complexity in a non-random direction, the direction of seeming designed for a purpose. In other words, Dawkins admits that what statisticians would call specified complexity is a plausible, at least prima facie, plausible indicator of design. Indeed, Dawkins, in an uh, op-ed in Free Inquiry magazine, himself uh, endorsed this idea about specified complexity being a reliable indicator of design. He said, uh, specified complexity takes care of the very sensible point that in the, the unique disposition of all its parts, a pile of detached watch parts tossed about in a box is uh, just as improbable as a fully functioning, genuinely complex watch. He says, what is specified about a watch is that it's improbable in the specific direction of telling the time. None of the other arrangements of all of those bits of watch 
tell the time. Although all of them are one possible arrangement out of all of the possible arrangements of those bits of watch. But only one arrangement of those parts tells the time, and that's the point. As Dr. William Lane Craig explains, in addition to high improbability, there also needs to be a conformity to an independently given pattern. When those two elements are present, we have specified complexity, which is a tip-off to design. And he gives this example. Uh, in a poker game, any deal of cards is equally and highly improbable. But if you find that every time a certain player deals, he ends up getting all four aces, you can bet this is not the result of chance, but of design. So Dawkins has what he calls an, an organic design problem. He says every animal embodies this statistical complexity of detail. That is, animals exhibit specified complexity. The complexity of a living body, in, of every one of its trillion cells, he says, is so mind-shattering to anyone who truly grasps it, the temptation to buckle at the knees and succumb to a non-explanation, i.e. God, uh, is almost overwhelming. But there's also a, a, a cosmic, a broader cosmic design problem. Says the laws and constants of physics are fine-tuned in such a way as to set up the conditions under which eyes and peacocks and humans with their brains and so on come into existence. There are preconditions of organic life that the universe exhibits. It's almost as though you have to have faith that it really is only a trick, he says. Faith that nothing supernatural has happened. Of course, he then goes on to try and rebut this impression of design. At the organic level, he gives the Darwin defence. Darwin patiently tells us exactly how the trick of life works. Cumulative natural selection. Well, I don't want to put too much emphasis on this, but these days, an easy repose upon natural selection, cumulatively producing the complexities of life, is a little old-fashioned. The atheist philosopher Jerry Fodor says that the classical Darwinist account of evolution as primarily driven by natural selection is in trouble on both conceptual and empirical grounds. An appreciable number of perfectly reasonable biologists are coming to think that the theory of natural selection can no longer just be taken for granted. For example, in a recent uh, peer-reviewed journal article Gunter Thiebden, I probably mispronounced that, of the Department of uh, Genetics at uh, Frederick Schiller University in Gen uh, Germany, says this. While we already have quite a good understanding of how organisms adapt to their environment, much less is known about the mechanisms beyond the origin of evolutionary novelties, behind the origin of evolutionary novelties. That's a process that's arguably different from adaptation. Despite Darwin's undeniable merits, explaining how the enormous complexity and diversity of living beings on our planet originated remains one of the greatest challenges of biology. The Nobel Prize winning physicist Brian Josephson uh, from Cambridge University 
notes that in books like uh, The Blind Watchmaker by Richard Dawkins, a crucial part of the argument concerns whether there exists a continuous path leading from the origins of life to man, each step of which is both favoured by natural selection and small enough to have happened by chance to be selected. It appears to be presented as a matter of log logical necessity that such a pathway exists. But actually, there is no such logical necessity. Rather, commonly made assumptions in evolution require the existence of such a path. And you can see this very clearly in Dawkins' work. This is the problem of what Dawkins calls climbing Mount Improbable. He asserts, however daunting the, the sheer cliffs that the adaptive mountain first presents, graded gradual ramps can be found the other side and the peak eventually scaled. This assertion is philosophical, not scientific. Dawkins himself says, without stirring from our chair, we can see that it must be so. Because nothing except gradual accumulation could, in principle, do the job. But what job is that? It's the job of explaining life naturalistically without mentioning a designer. In other words, Dawkins begs the question against design in order to put forward the theory that Sose says we don't need design to explain this. He's arguing in a circle. The atheist Daniel Dennett recognises this. He says, this is a purely theory-driven explanation, argued a priori from the assumption that natural selection tells the true story, some true story or other, about every curious feature of the biosphere. It assumes that Darwinism is basically on the right track. So simply appealing to your assumptions isn't enough to rebut the impression of design. Certainly, when we come to the question of the origin of life, Dawkins' appeal to Darwinian evolution is completely beside the point. The origin of things capable of undergoing evolution by natural selection can't be explained by evolution by natural selection. As the atheist philosopher of science Bradley Monton notes, however life arose from non-life, it didn't happen via the Darwinian mechanism of natural selection. Darwinian evolution only comes into play once life already exists. Darwinian evolution doesn't explain or even purport to explain how life arose in the first place. So Dawkins' uh, attempt to explain away the biological design problem doesn't even cover the territory, doesn't cover the waterfront. When it comes to the cosmic design problem, Dawkins appeals to the so-called multiverse hypothesis. He says that the idea that there are billions of universes having different laws and constants, and we could only find ourselves in one of the minority of universes whose laws and constants are compatible with our existence. Well, of course, we, we could. So his objection, if you try and actually put it into a proper argumentative form, is actually this. Premise one. If, if there were 
enough different universes out there, then the specified fine-tuning, the being propitious for life of our universe, wouldn't be complex or unlikely enough to justify a design inference. Premise two, there are enough different universes out there from which it would then follow validly. Therefore, the fine-tuning of our universe doesn't justify a design inference. And I've got premise two flashing away here because this is the crucial assertion in the argument. Notice in the first premise it's if, then, and then this is the crucial assertion. It's a bit like saying this. If enough monkeys existed, then they could type Shakespeare's complete works by chance, given enough typewriters and paper and time to randomly hit typewriters. If there were enough, then they could. But of course, anyone faced with a volume of the complete works of Shakespeare doesn't tend to think, oh, that's interesting, there must be a heck of a lot of monkeys somewhere. Anyone faced with the many monkeys hypothesis as an explanation for a, a volume of literature is going to ask the question, is there any independent reason to think that there are a giant monkey pool of typists who might have produced this? If not, if there is no independent evidence for the monkey typing pool, then the one author explanation is going to win hands down. Well, it's the same with the multiverse reply uh, to the cosmic design problem. Indeed, theoretical physicist Brian Greene says that people should be sceptical of multiverse theories because there is no evidence supporting their existence. So there is no independent evidence and we're in exactly the same dialectical position. In a recent article in uh, New Scientist magazine, Stuart Clark and Richard Webb Note the difficulty about multiverse theories is how you get convincing evidence for the existence of any. And they also raise this uh, issue, this problem. So by allowing every possibility beside the one that you're probing to play out somewhere in the multiverse, science robs itself of its predictive power. Uh, it becomes a useless venture to go trying to explain anything because what you end up saying is well anything that happens I guess it's going to happen somewhere indeed if the multiverse is infinite it's going to happen infinitely many times somewhere so what's to explain stuff just happens the atheist Roger Penrose indeed argues that there's evidence against multiverse theories. He asks us to consider how ridiculously cheaper in the sense of improbabilities it would be to simply produce by, by mere random collision of particles the entire solar system with all of its life ready-made just by chance. Or even just the popping into existence of a few conscious brains having the delusion of seeing the universe around us. So the problem is, why did we not come about this less improbable way rather than from an absurdly less probable Big Bang after 1.4 to the 10 to the 10 tedious years of evolution? 
It seems to me that this conundrum simply points to the incorrectness of the bubble universe, the multiverse idea. Indeed, another recent New Scientist uh, article by uh, reporting on the work of the atheist cosmologist Sean Carroll. Uh, you can probably just about read the, the title of the article there, which is Reject Universes That Lead to Cosmic Brains. And this is this idea that uh, Penrose wrote about, you know, in statistical terms, atoms just randomly arranging into a fully functional brain, having the delusion of seeing the universe around us. That's so much less improbable than the improbability of the fine-tuning of the universe that if there is a multiverse, we would expect ourselves, by sheer likelihood, to be these cosmic brains having a delusion which would undermine the entire scientific project. So as the agnostic cosmologist Paul Davis in his book The Goldilocks Enigma notes, multiverse theories merely shift the problem up a level from the universe to the multiverse. In physical multiverse theories, there has to be a finely tuned universe generating mechanism. There has to be a mechanism that produces lots of different universes. And it has to be a mechanism that will produce lots of different universes, rather than just carbon copies of the same lifeless universe. And that means that that mechanism itself exhibits specified complexity. So the multiverse theory, says David, cannot provide a complete and final explanation for why the universe is fit for life. At this point, Dawkins brings out what he thinks is his big gun, his philosophical argument against invoking a designer, which is basically this. The designer that you're invoking, to be capable of designing, would have to be another complex entity of the kind that in his turn needs the same kind of explanation. If you say that God did it is a better explanation, is the best explanation, then he's going to raise the question, yes, but who designed God? And who designed the designer of God? And who designed the designer of the design? And so on, and that's a problem. As he asserted in the first edition of The God Delusion, God would have to be highly improbable in the very same statistical sense as the entities he's supposed to explain. That is, they, God would exhibit specified complexity. Dawkins, in his new preface, says that this argument remains intact and inescapably devastating. So, let's see how we do with it. Uh, one justification he gives for this argument is, is, is this, is a sort of sub-supporting argument. He says, if you're trying to explain something improbable, it can never suffice to invoke an entity that is in itself at least as improbable. Okay? Because then you'd have to explain and so on. Question. Do we make an explanatory advance if we explain this very complex portrait of the painter Rembrandt, his self-portrait, if we explain the existence of this painting by invoking the existence of Rembrandt? Question, is Rembrandt more complex than his self-portrait? Okay, so it just seems obvious that Dawkins' principle is wrong. 
we do make explanatory advances sometimes by explaining things in terms of something more complicated than the thing we're explaining. But perhaps, to give him the benefit of the doubt, Dawkins is confusing an explanatory regress with an infinite explanatory regress. That's what he's worried about kicking off. An infinite explanatory regress, I would agree, is to be avoided. But explaining A by reference to B, portrait Rembrandt, doesn't necessarily entail an infinite regress. Portrait Rembrandt or cosmic fine-tuning, cosmic fine-tuner, doesn't necessarily entail an infinite regress, and that's a key point. On the other hand, the assumptions that Dawkins makes that for an explanation to be the best one, you need to have an explanation of the explanation, that does generate an infinite regress. Dawkins says that critics of my book, grasping at straws, they try to deny that a god capable of designing something complex must himself be complex. But remember, he means by complex here, specified complexity. Complexity in probability in the direction of of achieving some sort of function, seeming to be designed for a purpose. He says, a god capable of designing something complex, I specify complexity, something that's contingent statistical improbability in a non-random direction, must himself be complex in exactly the same sense of the term. Um, the picture here is, I have this set at home, it's a, a magnetic uh, design your own deity on your fridge kit. You can buy these online from Amazon. They have pictures of various uh, deities from different cultures around the world and you can you know, get the body of Zeus and slap the head of Odin on him and uh, design your own deity. It's kind of like saying, if there's a god, he has to be a bit like a design your own deity fridge magnet set. A, a, a contingent arrangement, a complex arrangement of parts. He's thinking that God must be complex rather than the traditional theological formula of calling God simple. God has to be clever enough to calculate the exact values of the physical constants to tune the universe. Call that simple, says Dawkins. He has to have the bandwidth to lift, listen to the prayers and praises of billions of people simultaneously. You know, call that simple. God must be almighty, all-knowing. The one thing he can't be to match the job description, says Dawkins, is simple. And he misunderstands the British philosopher theologian Richard Swinburne on this point, whom he quotes and interacts with. He quotes uh, this quote from Swinburne. So, uh, Swinburne says, Theism postulates for its one cause a God with infinite power, infinite knowledge, and infinite freedom. And Dawkins says, so God is simple for Swinburne because there is only one of him. Yet he has to have enough bandwidth, etc., etc. You see, Dawkins completely misses the point of what Swinburne is saying. Swinburne says a person could not be a person if he had zero degrees of power, knowledge, freedom and so on. But to suppose a finite limit to these qualities is less simple than to suppose no limit. And to suppose infinite degrees of those qualities, i.e. completely unlimited degrees of those qualities, bound together eternally, is to postulate the simplest kind of person that there could be. 
That's what Swinburne means by simple. Swinburne's point is not just that there's only one God, but that the one God doesn't just happen to have this much power, but not this much, and so on, but that God is almighty, and so on. This is metaphysically simpler than explanations where one can ask, well, why this much power and not less or more? Why this much freedom but not less or more? As J. Wesley Richards, a theologian from America, says, the doctrine of divine simplicity is principally the claim that God is not made up of parts in the sense of being made up of elements or properties that are more fundamental than God is. Like those fridge magnet deities are made up of parts that are contingently arrangeable and are more fundamental than the deity that you make up with them is. This doctrine of divine simplicity does not entail that God doesn't have many distinguishable properties, for example, or that he can't listen to a lot of prayers all at the same time. This was a point made to Dawkins in a debate between Dawkins and the former Archbishop of Canterbury that was being hosted by the agnostic philosopher Sir Anthony Kenny. He was an agnostic philosopher, but he weighed in at one point because he was getting frustrated with Dawkins on this point, and he made a distinction between complexity of structure uh, and complexity of function. And he gave this illustration. He said, look, the electric razor... It has a greater complexity of structure than the cutthroat razor. It's just a sharpened bit of metal. But the electric razor can only be used to cut a beard. The cutthroat razor might also be used to cut a throat. So the item with the simplicity of structure has a greater complexity of function, things that it can do, as opposed to the item that has a greater simplicity of function, despite having a greater, a greater complexity of structure. Well, here's how Richard Dawkins responded to Anthony Kenny. I really don't see what you're saying. So, must God be complex rather than simple in the relevant, well-defined philosophical senses of the terms. No. None of Dawkins's observations or arguments is an argument showing that God must be complex and not simple in the relevantly defined senses. Dawkins equivocates over the terms complex and simple in order to beg the question again, he begs the question against God being a simple, necessarily existent being, rather than a complicated, contingent arrangement of things. To sum it up, a book called The Contingent God Delusion probably wouldn't have sold as well. Very few people believe in contingent gods, after all. Dawkins' attempted rebuttal of the design argument does not remain intact and unanswerable. As far as Dawkins at least shows, 
Even the intuitive apprehension of design that people tend to have when they look at a peacock feather or a cell or uh, the cosmos or learn about the fine-tuning of the fundamental constants and values of the universe that permit biology. Those intuitive apprehensions of design and indeed the design arguments that philosophers discuss that, that that syllogize, that bring out and, and put into argumentative form those intuitions, both from biology and cosmological specified complexity, do seem to provide good reason to believe in a creator, at least. Thank you. is from the Department of Genetics at Frederick Schiller University um, saying that although natural, uh, cumulative natural selection uh, seems able to well account for the adaptation of organisms to environment I mean he's thinking of things like um, you know, Darwin's famous finches where the, the beak size of the finches in the population changed uh, as the weather, uh, dryness and wetness of the weather changed and the seeds became harder and the, the birds with the stronger bigger beaks could survive better because they could eat the food that was available better uh, and then when the weather climate changed back in the other direction then the, the population uh, expression of that uh, um, beaks changed in the other direction again so they adapted to the environment and you could you could provably see that kind of thing happening or um, bacteria becoming uh, invulnerable to 
the medicines that we, uh, we use to, to stop them killing us and so on. But he's making a distinction between that and, and the sort of origination of, say, a uh, completely new body plan uh, in the Cambrian explosion, say. Uh, and he's saying there that that, that is a process that's arguably different from, from adaptation and despite Darwin's undeniable menace, explaining how the enormous complexity and diversity of living beings on our planet originated remains one of the greatest challenges of biology. In other words, cumulative natural selection doesn't cut the mustard. Uh, there was a, a meeting at the Royal Society in England just last year that you can look up on the internet. There was a, a meeting of uh, scientists on both sides of this debate. Uh, those uh, in the so-called third way of philosophy, of, um, sorry, philosophy, <laughs> natural philosophy of, of biology, um, putting forward the need to uh, add uh, other mechanisms and saying you can't just tweak uh, neo-Darwinism in order to explain these things. There needs to be a sort of a revolution in our thinking about it against those who are saying, no, no, basically Darwinism got it right and neo-Darwinism, and maybe we need to just tweak a bit here and there. Um, but what, all I was really pointing out is, is today there is an active debate amongst uh, scientists, and I don't by that mean you know, Christian fundamentalist scientists in some Baptist college in America versus uh, properly credentialed state university professors. I mean a debate amongst secular university professors uh, about this. Uh, one, you know... Whichever side of that debate is right or wrong doesn't really matter for, the, for the making the point that for Dawkins simply to say, I know that biological things look like they're designed, but we've got a better naturalistic, simpler, better naturalistic explanation now, and that's the one that Darwin gave us. That is, these days, too simplistic an old hat. He's resting on his laurels and needs to at least sort of interact with where the contemporary debate thinking on these things is um, and the debate may turn out one way it may turn out the other but you ca it's not enough these days just to say oh yeah Darwin explains all that moving on yeah thank you very much you can follow up if, uh, anyone else mm. Yes, you, you, you talked a lot that the Darwinism could not explain how life originated in the first place. Mm. And we heard about um, <coughs> molecular evolution, that this theory of molecules evolving before it actually became um, independent cellular beings. Yeah, so the, the question is raising the issue of so-called molecular uh, evolution. I think that our trouble here is that the word evolution is used to mean at least half a dozen different things in scientific lingo. And when the term is being applied to cumulative uh, random variation uh, being uh, chosen, by, chosen by natural selection uh, and then spread amongst a population of reproducing organisms so that they adapt their environment. That's one meaning of evolution. And obviously that meaning of evolution cannot be applied to the origin of things capable of evolving in that sense of the term. You, ca you, you can't have 
uh, differential survival of reproducing organisms until you have reproducing organisms passing on information, having mistakes in the, the, the genetics of that information as it's passed on, some of which might turn out to be beneficial in the environmental circumstances, etc. When you're talking about chemical evolution, you're talking about going from non-living chemicals, some sort of chemical soup or something, we don't know, to those kind of organisms capable of adaptation to their environment through um, the Darwinian kind of uh, mechanisms. So we're, we're talking about two different things, but using the same word uh, to talk about them. Um, just as much as you can talk about cosmic uh, evolution or evolution just as things have changed over time, or evolution meaning um, common ancestry, uh, as a different question from evolution meaning uh, an ex a biological explanation for the pattern of common ancestry. So these are different, separable questions. You have your answer? Try and explain it to me so I don't miss it. It's my fault, so I've missed it. Okay, okay. Any more questions? I would say the best, the best um, recent thing to look at on, on the question of the origin of life, go onto YouTube and look up uh, the lecture by James Tor. James Tor, who's, uh, uh, he deals with, um, he led the team recently that, that won the world championship for building micro-machines with molecules. And he's uh, given a lecture about the origin of life and what we know and what we don't know about the origins of life, which is really good to look at. Uh, James Tor, or Tors, James Tor. Uh, maybe, maybe you can write it on blackboard afterwards. Sure. If anyone's got, you, uh, got internet access at the moment, if we could up and find it for us, that would be useful. Uh, yes, uh, maybe I didn't catch you, but did you say that uh, God doesn't have explanation or a creator of God right yeah there's no because yeah the, the idea of God is the idea of, of a being who is the creator of everything except himself and who doesn't need a creator and, and if you don't have some such idea then you do get into the problem that, that Dawkins was raising about having an infinite regress and I agree with this is one point I agree with Dawkins on that appealing to an infinite regress to explain things is a non, is a non-starter but if you're going to avoid an infinite regress, if you say, how do we explain A in terms of B? How do we explain B in terms of C? And so on. To stop an infinite regress, you have to have something that can explain all of this stuff, but which doesn't itself need an explanation. And the traditional Christian, Judeo-Christian concept of God is that he is an uncreated being. He is an uncaused cause. He is the the first uncaused cause, and that he exists not contingently like an arrangement of fridge magnets, or like fridge magnets, or fridges, but he exists necessarily. Um, so in a sense, you could say there's, there's an, the explanation of God's existence is internal to his nature rather than external to his nature. Uh, this is the way that uh, the philosopher Leibniz 
put the cosmological argument, really, saying it, it, when things have, co have explanations, that explanation is either outside of themselves, outside of their nature, or internal to their nature. Uh, there are things that have explanations outside of their nature, things like fridges and you and me. Uh, to avoid an infinite regress of such explanations, there must be something whose explanation is internal to its nature. It just is its nature to exist. And that's the only way, the only way to avoid having an infinite regress. So, uh, why, why is it better to avoid because well, because an infinite regress is 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 basically eternally forever putting off an explanation. It's saying we could explain A if B existed to explain it. But but why? That question. You know, what explains it? As Dawkins was asking of contingent things, things that don't explain their own existence. Over well, this. This can only do the explaining if it is real itself. It, but if it is the kind of thing that needs an explanation or needs a cause in order to be real and to cause something else, to explain something else, just mentioning these things hasn't really explained why is there, why is there this chain of contingent things, this chain of things that, that need explanations outside of themselves in order to explain anything. And if you only give explanations that invoke that kind of thing, the kind of thing that would explain if they have explanations, then, the, then you really you haven't explained anything. You haven't explained why there is this whole series of things needing explanations. It's, it's, there's sort of, sort of question hanging as to well, why is there this series of causes or explanations um, if all of them are the kind of thing that need themselves to be explained. Uh, so, you know, why do they exist if they, if they do exist? It, let me give you a different illustration. If I uh, ask, can I borrow a book? And he says, yeah, uh, you can borrow it from me, but I've lent it to a friend at the moment. I'll have to go to them, borrow it back off them, and then I can give it to you. Okay? Well, suppose his friend says exactly the same thing. And their friend says exactly the same thing. And that always happens. Okay? Will I ever get the book? No. If I, if I do get the book... That would mean that someone down the line of, of lending books, someone had to have the book without having to get it off someone else. Now, in terms of causality, being given existence, if, I, if I'm given existence, however many things that existence is given to me through, eventually that existence had to come from something that had existence without having to borrow it from something else. Okay. Any more questions? Hi. Um, regarding your view on evolution, mm. um, is your view that it's probably not true? Or is your 
point kind of to like say, hey, you should take it for granted. Because yeah. as far as I can see, it's a quite powerful model to explain complexity. Yeah, thank you. Uh, so the, the question uh, is about my view on evolution and what point am I making in the lecture, which of course can be two different things. So the primary point I'm making in the lecture is uh, Dawkins is too, too quick and easy to just point to evolution in the argument. Um, things are more complicated than that these days. So he should do more work to sustain his argument, as it were, um, than the sort of old school neo-Darwinianism that he represents. Um, my personal view, and again, taking into account the fact that evolution means lots of different things, there are plenty of senses of evolution that I'm, I'm happy to accept and I think are robustly supported by evidence. There, there is a sense of evolution that I think is, personally, I think is not well supported, and that is the idea that that kind of neo-Darwinian natural selection is sufficient to explain not only adaptation to environments, but say the, the, the pattern of common ancestry that we see, uh, particularly in, in events like the Cambrian explosion, or to explain the origin of life, say. Um, but those are, again, those are not points that I would uh, rest huge amounts on. Those are contentious issues, and those are not th th those are not views that you have to have in order to believe in a god or, or be a Christian. Um, you know, they're, they're, I, I go to a church back in the UK. Uh, where one of the, uh, the guys that I do a lot of work with at the church is a professor of, uh, um, at the university of, uh, he works on DNA, is his sort of professional day job. Uh, he works for an institute called the Faraday Institute of Science and Religion, and he is totally happy with uh, evolutionary science, and he's a, a Christian brother. Um, so we agree to disagree on some bits of, of that. Um, and it's not definitive of, of being or not being Christian. It's just in the, in the dialectic of this argument, uh, I think it is worth pointing out that things aren't as simple as Dawkins makes it seem. Uh, and that, that debate that I'm pointing to, as I say, is not a debate that's in-house like, between Christians and non-Christians. Today, actually, that is a debate amongst non-Christians as well. Um, and, I, and I think that's why, particularly, it's worth mentioning now, um, whereas you know maybe wouldn't have been worth mentioning 20 years ago. Yeah. Well, there's a question down there, Paul. So <coughs> the question is, Dawkins uh, uh, that they seem to rely on statistics and this random couple somehow uh, uh, gives, uh, what you say, like a, yeah, the random company gives uh, this thing for, mm -hmm. for um, uh, making conjectures, but uh, and explain it, like, yeah. this theory is like, well, what, what would be left of Dawkins' theory if this uh, statistics was not to picture, I mean, this random company? Yeah, so the, the, the statistical point comes into the, the level of complexity. This, this is good to address because it's something I didn't have time to address in the argument. Um, I just took it from Dawkins that he's saying that the level of complexity of statistical unlikelihood that you're talking about when you look at a, a cell or a peacock feather 
uh, or um, the fine-tuning of the universe, uh, even worth, is, is so high um, that you really need some sort of explanation. It, it's so complex in this direction of seeming designed. Um, but if things were not that complex, it's like, um, do you have the game Scrabble in Norway with the little tiles with the letters on? Okay, so you know, if you're playing Scrabble and you're drawing these tiles sight unseen from the bag, you might draw out the tiles that say D-O-G, and that's the, the English word dog. Okay, so that sequence of tiles is, is specified. There's an independently given pattern that those tiles have now matched. Dog, it's the word for dog. But you don't react with great surprise and you don't intuitively think, someone must be playing a trick on me. Because it's not all that unlikely that in playing Scrabble occasionally you pull out a short word at random. But if you were playing Scrabble and you pulled out the words, um, some things do exist by necessity, some things by chance, and some things by art. Plato, Laws, Book 10. Then you would be suspicious. Because not only have you got this matching of an independently given pattern, like the rules of English grammar, uh, a particular quote from Plato, and so on, but you've, hit, you've matched that pattern at a really high level of improbability. And you can go into uh, debates about what level of improbability you need in different contexts for it to be rational, to be surprised and think, that there must be some explanation for this more than just chance. And actually, in those contexts where we see... Uh, patterns being matched at sufficiently high levels of improbability and we know the origin of those, those patterns then it, it inevitably some designing mind has had a hand in it somewhere along, uh, along the line and so you have an inferential uh, justification for invoking design when you see such a pattern being hit at sufficiently high improbability. That's why, in order to avoid the fine-tuning argument, Dawkins tries to appeal to these other universes. It's like, it, 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 it's like saying, yes, you know, keep rolling this, this dice and keep getting the number one is very improbable. You know, after a while, and you keep rolling the number one on a dice, you think, this dice must be loaded. It's a trick. But, but Dawkins is kind of saying, but maybe there are gazillions and billions and billions of dice being rolled at the same time, uh, with all sorts of results coming up randomly. And amongst those so many infinite numbers of dice being rolled, it's not improbable that one of them would keep coming up the number one. There's probably one that keeps coming up the number six. There are so many. You see? Well, he, he's kind of right, but he has to assume that there are enough dice rolls going on. He has to assume that there are enough differently tuned universes out there. And if that were true, then the specificity, the life-permitting specificity of our universe wouldn't be complex. Because there's so many resources for producing that pattern match by chance. It wouldn't be unlikely anymore. And so we couldn't infer design from it. But as I say, he just assumes that there are enough universes out there to avoid this design inference. And that's like saying, Shakespeare, oh, must be produced by loads of monkeys. Thank you.
Thank you. Thank you. Uh, chap up there. Yeah. So Dawkins assumes uh, many po possible uh, dice rolls, but you assume God. Uh, by which mechanism should you uh, prioritize your assumption of God above Dawkins' assumption of uh, right. the universe? Yeah, thank you. Excellent question. So, um, maybe I, if I didn't make this clear in my uh, prepared remarks, I apologize, but I was trying to uh, give the impression that I wasn't assuming God in the way that Dawkins is assuming not God. Uh, I don't know if you were at the beginning, but I, I started on one way that you can cash this out, which was the, that we, we begin with our intuitions in philosophy. I started with a quote from Cicero about it just being obvious that there is design in the world. Uh, and it, uh, philosophically speaking, the rational thing to do is to start with your intuitions, to start believing that things are the way that they seem to be, until you've got reason to think that they're not. Um, so it's a defeasible impression, intuitively, of something being true, and you wait for evidence to come along that overturns that impression. And if, if you don't do that, then you never end up rationally believing anything, because the, the only thing that can make you change your mind is trusting the appearance of the evidence that makes you change your mind saying, well, I will trust the appearance of that evidence that overturns my first opinion until such time, perhaps, as new evidence comes along that shows me that actually that was wrong after all. Um, so if you don't start trusting your impressions of things, you're sceptical about everything because you wouldn't trust any evidence that you were given about anything. So that's, that's one way of cashing it out. The other way was, was there's an argument in, in what I gave, and the argument is if something exhibits specified complexity, that is, it hits a specification and it does so at sufficiently high improbability, then that is a rational indicator of design. We're rationally warranted by something matching that kind of complexity to infer that it was designed. Things in the biological and the cosmological world do exhibit that kind of specified complexity. Dawkins fails to give arguments to undermine uh, that. Uh, he admits that, it, it, that, that fine-tuning exhibits this, what would be specified complexity, in the absence of other dice rolls, other universes and so on. Therefore, we're rational to, to think that those things are designed. So both on the basis of, of intuition that can be supported by the standard method of philosophical inquiry, and on the basis of a logically valid argument from specified complexity, I was arguing for thinking that there's a designer rather than just assuming that there is a designer.